Let us join together in prayer. Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand and understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory and all that we do through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and did not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you brought, brought up my soul from shale, restored me to life from among those gone down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his faithful ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you had established me as a strong mountain. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then our New Testament reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Quick background, the book of Revelation, as many of you know, unfortunately has sort of this reputation as, as a strange and confusing work about the future and whatever it is. And certainly there is a strangeness to this book that hits our modern ears, and, and certainly it has something to do with the future, but it, it's also remember, worth remembering that the Greek title for this book is Apocalypse. And that's a Greek word that, mean, that has to do with revealing something that is right now. John, the author of Revelation, he's in exile on a small rocky island called Patmos amid this wave of Christian persecution. And there the Holy Spirit gives him a vision of God's kingdom, God's truth as it currently really is. It's, it's sort of like the curtain is being pulled back on all of reality so John can see what is actually right now, what is actually true in the kingdom of God, and what this means for the church right now and forevermore. And then he writes Revelation to pass along what he, what he learns as an encouragement to the church. And, and, and what we get today in Revelation chapter 5 verses 11 through 14 is just a portion of John's vision of what is real. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands singing with full voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. January 4th, 2006 was the Rose Bowl National Championship game between the University of Texas football team and the University of Southern California's football team. Michelle and her family are from Texas. Her parents went to UT. Michelle and I at the time were living in Pasadena, California. And and so through a student of hers in the high school where she was teaching, uh, Michelle was able to secure tickets for the big game for the whole family. Those of you who know maybe a little bit about football, you you may have remembered some of the names involved in this game. Reggie Bush, Matt Leinart, Vince Young. And it's building into this classic for the Rose Bowl ages. Back and forth, heroics, both sides of the ball. And then at the very end of the game, fourth quarter, it's fourth down. 19 seconds left to go in the game. And Texas is down by a little bit. And the quarterback for the University of Texas, Vince Young, he takes the snap. He finds this opening and he runs into the corner of the end zone for the game-winning touchdown and even though the game is kind of being played on enemy terrain in southern california boy those texas fans travel well i can still hear the deafening overwhelming sound of jubilation as that crowd let loose right complete strangers hugging weeping dancing yelling where have you known Some of the loudest, most exuberantly joyful cheers in your life. Was it a sporting event? A political rally? A concert? A parade? A church? I mean, have you you known this almost otherworldly sound of deafening jubilance? John's vision... On the island of Patmos, it culminates at one point to this deafening jubilance. In the scripture I read just a couple minutes ago, where John's in the middle of receiving this vision from the Holy Spirit about what life looks like in the kingdom of God, in God's reality. We read that, quote, there are myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels. It's it's a number too numerous to count, is the point the Greek's making. And they're singing with full voice. On top of that, we read a little further on in the passage that that every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that is in them is singing. The joyful song of, of countless angels and elders along with every sound of all the creatures of creation and all the corners up and down, it's overwhelming with fullness. And it's more than music, right? It's lyrics, too. The angels, the elders, their their initial lyrics, worthy. Worthy is the first word, axios. It's a a distinctly political term in the Greek-speaking part of the Roman Empire. Crowds were trained to say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the emperor when the emperor appeared in public. And so if you heard a large crowd singing worthy, you expect they're giving some kind of acknowledgement to the emperor, the one with great military power, the one with great prestige, the one with great wealth, the one who in that time was understood, considered to be divine. 
I think about what happens in our time when, when there's a celebrity sighting. Maybe it's a famous athlete, famous actor, famous politician, a person of note for one reason or another. Now, we may not shower that person with a certain word like worthy. And we may not see them as particularly divine. But we do have a way of pulling out our phones and snapping a lot of pictures. Right? Or if we're feeling particularly bold, maybe we go up to them while they're eating their meal at the restaurant and we request a photo of them because we'd love to have that. And we know if we get to share that with our friend group or or our, our, our social media group, that's a big deal. I mean, that's a famous person, a rich person, an influential person, a person of power. They're worthy of our attention. They're worthy of our conversational fodder. They're, they're worthy of a, a snap photo. But whether it's emperors or athletes, celebrities or politicians, the singular thread that these people have is, is power, is wealth, is prestige. They can and they have made great or notable or noticeable things happen. Worthy. Sing the angels. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered. And the word here for lamb, it's not the typical one used in most of the rest of the New Testament when talking about lamb and sheep. In fact, it's a rarely used word, only used one other time in the New Testament. And the best translation is little sheep, little lamb. And so are the angels showering with thunderous, deafening praise, not upon a great lion or beast or even regular lamb, but a little lamb. One who is, quote, looking as if he has been slaughtered, as Revelation 5, 6 puts it. Worthy, this one, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The angels pour out a seven-fold blessing upon this little slaughtered lamb. And often in ancient Greek, when you have a list strung together like this, where there's an odd number of things listed, seven here, it's the middle attribute that is the most important one, that is the central one to the string of attributes. So let's count. In this case, they say, worthy, this one, to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might. That's the middle word. The main point of emphasis in this song is that the little slaughtered lamb is the one with great unparalleled might. And so here's John. Right? He's been captured by the emperor, (laughs) sentenced to exile on this remote, rocky island. It feels like his entire existence is lived upon enemy terrain, and he has no idea... What's going to come of this little Jesus movement he's a part of? What's going to come of his life? What's going on in any part of the rest of the world? And in the midst of this deep unknown, John is allowed to see underneath his circumstances, underneath the pain, the anxieties, the fears, to what is actually real and the terrain upon which he actually stands. And what the angels and all of creation declare is that the one who endured the cross is the one risen above all. The one who is servant to all is greatest of all. The one who loved to the point of death is the one stronger 
than the one who bears the sword. The one who is weakest of all is the one through whom God's strength is made perfect. The God of love reigns over all of creation, all of human history, all over every human life. The enemy cannot and will not prevail. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And as strange and as confusing a book as Revelation can be, I wonder if this isn't one section where a lot of us wouldn't mind an experience like John's from time to time. I mean, we may not be ourselves ever exiled to an island in that kind of unknown or imprisonment or whatever, but, but, but goodness, too often in our own lives, it certainly appears that we're on enemy terrain and Jesus is not in charge and love does not prevail. I mean, the headlines, goodness, they make it regularly clear. This world is chaotic, unjust, and but a moment away from more terror. Our, our own lives regularly sense good reason for anxiety about what's to come. Routinely, we question whether any amount of love or forgiveness or generosity can do a thing for that person, for those people, for that situation. Our failing bodies or our failing minds or both They too easily suggest death's power more so than they do Jesus' faithfulness. I mean, what a gift it would be if we were in this stadium and lifted uh, almost to another plane of reality by cheers, by the joy, by the assurance that the God of love is in charge and prevails, prevails in fact through and by way of the cross. And we talk about finding tickets to the big game, right? But then we turn back to the beginning of this vision John is given. We read that the beginning of the vision at the outset of chapter 4. It's John speaking. I looked, and there a door stood open. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you. John looks up. And the door to the kingdom of heaven is not only a jar, but there's a voice sounding like a trumpet calling, come here. I mean, no wonder Jesus in his ministry kept saying things like, the kingdom of God has come near. No wonder he spoke of the kingdom of God in these simple parables that that would pull from everyday images. Jesus genuinely understood that the door to God's truth, God's kingdom, God's love, it's right here. And the door is ajar. Can you hear the angels? One of my other favorite crowd cheering memories happened at a game I didn't attend. I watched it on television the night of September 6th, 1995. Anybody know the game? A baseball player for the Baltimore Orioles named Cal Ripken Jr. He broke Lou Gehrig's record for the most consecutive baseball games ever played. And on that night, Cal Ripken Jr., he played 2,131 baseball games in a row. Meaning he never took a day off, never had an injury, n- nothing like that. And once that, that game, 2,131, became official in the record books at the fifth inning, the game stopped. And Cal Ripken comes out to acknowledge the crowd. And he tips his hat a few times and, and hugs his family. 
But that wasn't enough. I mean, he tried. He tried to go back, sit down on the bench, let the game continue. But the crowd, they just would not let up. It was overwhelming. And so his teammates kind of get him up, and, and Rip getting ad hoc just decides to start jogging the stadium. And he's just shaking the fans' hands, high fives down the first baseline, through the outfield, down back the third baseline whole time, man, the crowd's going nuts. Their, their love, their admiration they had for this guy, the city, it was, eh, truth be told, I was crying in front of my television in Cincinnati, Ohio. How did I, a few hundred miles away, sense the truth of that moment so acutely? Now, what I didn't realize in the moment but I came to find out later that is that that announcer for that game also set a record. A guy named Chris Berman. He did not speak a single word for 19 consecutive on-air minutes. During the time Ripken broke the record, when he waved to the fans, when he ran the whole stadium high-fiving and waving and greeting... Like all great announcers, Berman recognized that when it comes to the most sublime moments of all, words and explanations get in the way. He just let the cheering crowd tell the truth for 19 minutes. And I assure you that that alone can puncture to the depth of a soul of one who thought themselves miles from that. I'm convinced one of the most imperative things for the church to do in an age where the chatter and commentary are incessant, where the emails and the texts never stop, where the headlines can weigh so heavily, where our minds so easily and readily race with what might happen, what's going to happen, what's going to... I am convinced one of the most imperative things the church needs in this day and age are places and times where we join with the psalmist and say, I have stilled And quieted my soul. That we might notice the door which is so near. And ajar. And in the silence hear the thunderous joy being proclaimed about what is true. Undoubtedly, this is one of the central reasons, right? We gather week to week for worship. I love it as the Methodist pastor and bishop, Will Willimon, remarks, worship is where we withdraw to the real world, where we're given eyes to see and ears to hear the advent of a kingdom the world has taught us to regard as only fantasy. But I'm also mindful that John of Patmos finds himself on an island during this vision. A remote, rocky island, probably not all that scenic of an island, but also right in the midst of God's creation. And what again does God's scripture say about God's creation? What about like Psalm 19? The skies proclaim the work of God's hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out to all the earth. Or or what about Isaiah 55? The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, God, 
And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Or, or do you remember Romans 1? Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, they have been understood and seen through the things God has made. Time and again, Scripture, including the one we read today in Revelation, is clear that creation is in ceaseless, wordless, thunderous declaration. The Lamb is worthy. The Lamb holds the story. Love has prevailed. Love reigns. What if we found some time in God's creation? Apart from the chatter and the commentary and just listened for the sound coming through the door ajar. And as with John of Patmos, the current situation may well remain the same for a bit. He's still in an island, exiled, not of his own choosing. But what a thing when the soul hears a fresh, true word about who is in charge and that the way of love has overcome, will overcome. And by the way, one of the most basic ways you can tell that a church is hearing the constant refrain of that thunderous chorus. One of the most basic ways you could tell a church is being rooted and shaped in and by that song is that the church joins with the elders in verse 14. The elders fell to their knees and worshipped. Humility. Letting go of our ways, our fears, our need to be in control. The foremost sign that of a church lifted up by the eternal chorus, they kneel. Because you know they really start to trust that the way of humility is the way of rising. May those who have ears to hear listen. Amen.